0: But we are continuing our series here in the Gospel of St. Matthew on Jesus' ethics of evangelism. Basically, these are the instructions, the teachings of Jesus to his disciples of how he wants his disciples to share the good news of Christ, the good news of his kingdom, and the good news of salvation. Now, what we have covered so far... I think the absolute heart of what we've seen is that God the Father, Jesus refers to as the Lord of the harvest, is reaping the souls, specifically of the harassed and the helpless of this world. Those who are being crushed by this broken, sinful human system that we all live within. They're especially the ones that God is interested in going after and finding the Son is moved by compassion and is passionately undertaking this work and now is inviting us and specifically in this text of Scripture his 12 disciples to join him in this harvest moved by the same compassion seeking out the harassed and helpless of the world with the good news of Jesus And then what we looked at last week is that God, the Holy Spirit, is bearing witness through the children of God, so through us from inside, out of us to proclaim this message. That it's a a move of God within us, but a genuine expression through us that the good news of Jesus works and saves, and we are living examples of that. That's what we've looked at so far. Isn't that lovely? This is a beautiful picture of God's sovereign movement to intervene in the brokenness of the world through his son and utilizing his people. That it's not just God doing this work, he's involving his children, us, in that same work. Now, for us as Canadians, we live in what's called a pluralistic society. So it's taught that in order for people of different cultures and religions and traditions and beliefs to coexist together, peaceably, that those beliefs must be kept private in order to not cause question or challenge to the beliefs of other people. So the goal then is to have everyone kind of lay down their public truth claims in their public life and instead simply keep them to themselves, in order that we would just kind of have these other secondary things in common and we'd live together in peace. Now, we're what's called a secular society. Now, what secularism believes is that we can never really know what is true. So secularism isn't necessarily atheistic. Secularism says, We just shouldn't make truth claims that compete with one another. That the only truth we can really know is that somebody else might be right. We don't know who's right, and so we shouldn't claim to be right. But in doing so, we're claiming this is the right way of viewing things. That's kind of the irony of a secularistic society. Now what happens within that kind of pluralistic ideology, that, that view of it, is that anyone who then has a very public faith can be called a bigot, a religious, a religious extremist, or a fundamentalist. These are the kind of slurs that get thrown around for people who live very publicly. It's like, oh, you're one of those. right? doesn't matter which uh, religion or belief system you come from, but to live very overtly is like, uh, you are a threat to our pluralism. The temptation, I think, for us is to then say, as Canadians who are Christians, now isn't the time for mission because it's offensive or it's disrespectful to others and we don't want to offend or disrespect others. Now, I actually think that heart. To not want to offend or to disrespect is an honorable one. So, what we're dealing with as a church is we're going, we claim to follow Jesus, and that means we're apprentices to Jesus, we're disciples of Jesus. And up until now, we've been studying the book of Matthew, and it's all about how, like, Jesus is for the cause of the broken and the hurting and the sinful who need a Savior. And all the crowds are coming to Jesus because he's so incredibly likable. And now Jesus is saying, join me in the mission. And us as Canadians are kind of going, that's a little uncomfortable. Because of the pluralistic society and ideology we live under. It's like, how do we do that? How do we be faithful to following Jesus while dealing with our context where people aren't actually too keen on that idea of us being open about our beliefs. Is that fair? That's kind of the struggle, the tension that we live in as a Jesus people community. Okay? Now, Timothy Keller, he used to talk about three options for existing in a pluralistic society. The first is you hide who you are for fear of angering your neighbor. I would say most of us probably fall into that category. Right? We go, I'm going to hide how deeply I believe in Jesus and how much He's my source of salvation and fulfillment because I don't want to anger or hurt my neighbors. The second, though, is this. Is that you speak out about who you are and your beliefs in such a way that you intentionally provoke anger in your neighbor. So when we hear people talk about culture wars, that's what we're talking about. People who go, screw a pluralistic society. I'm a follower of Jesus, and I'm going to do that as abruptly and offensively as I feel you are holding your ideology. Okay. Now, there might be some of you like that here today. But I think it, it compromises on the way of Jesus by intentionally seeking to provoke anger and often mischaracterizes instead of loves those that we have differing opinions with. So, Timothy Keller then gives us a third option. He says, where we learn how to share who we are, but do it in such a way as to create peace and civility. This, I think, is what we're going for at Christ Church. Because the third option is the only one that provides integrity for the individual and hope for creating a true pluralistic society. Because we actually do want to exist in the world, not just in Canada, but in the world, with people of other faiths and beliefs and ideologies, etc. But we want to do it in a way that's authentic, loving, where we and they are fully present in their beliefs, in the neighborly relationships that we're cultivating. I had a friend back in Alberta that I made who was a devout Muslim. And so him and I would get together, and we we just set the ground rules right away at the beginning where we said we actually want real friendship with one another. But in order for us to truly have friendship, we're both going to have to try and evangelize the other. And we laughed about that, but there was a clear sense of agreement to go, in order for him to be fully himself, his beliefs had to be present in our relationship. Right? And in order for me to be fully myself, my beliefs needed to be present in the relationship. So then what we had to figure out is, how do those beliefs argue nicely? How do we hold the friendship while being in disagreement? But this is actually, I think, what the true vision of a pluralistic society is. And I think what we see in history is that the church has a unique way of actually bringing together people of significant differences. Because Jesus is what's binding these different people together. Now, Jesus in the text of scripture that we are in right now is telling us that even with great care and thought put into sharing ourselves and our faith, there will be cases where we elicit anger, hatred, and persecution from some. But he wants us to know that the ultimate reason for that is in verse 24 and 25, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master, It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. Jesus' main point here is that, look, I did this perfectly. I loved people perfectly. That's what we see in the life and ministry of Jesus. And they still did not like me. And if you're truly my apprentices and my followers, then do you think that maybe your imperfect expression of that is also going to elicit some conflict. He's trying to set the stage here to go, this is not a guarantee of a constant state of peaceableness. Okay? Because I think life in this world makes the average Christian wonder in a world that's often hostile towards our faith in Christ, do I really want to be a part of this? Like when we think about the bad rep churches have and and we see Christians in the news and how they're carrying themselves and what they're saying and what they're representing about our faith, it can make us feel like, do I really want to be associated with this? Do I really want to live out loud with this? And Jesus wants us to see that this isn't actually a strange experience. It's an essential experience. The experience should make you realize That as a servant and as a disciple, being in some of these situations is a sign that you're actually like Jesus. But we have to make sure that it's for the right reasons. So I've harped on that for a few weeks, so I won't talk more about that. If you're going to receive hostility for your faith, it better be for your faith and not just for your bad conduct. I'm serious. And you and Jesus have to have that conversation at home. To go, is this a character issue? Or is this that I'm associated with you, Jesus, issue? And I think a healthy Christian should be able to ask that question. To go, I'm I'm not being persecuted at work. I'm actually just being demoted because I fight with people all the time. Because I'm a difficult person. And blaming it on Jesus is not helpful. Jesus is going, dude, I'm trying to save you from that stuff. Right? So we want to be honest about our character issues and whether or not that's really what's causing the issues or if it's actually our faith. Now verse 26, this is the comfort that Jesus offers. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. So Jesus is fundamentally saying this. Don't be afraid because I, I want you to have no fear when thinking about the hostility of the world towards your faith, because there are no injustices committed against you that will not be revealed by Jesus and dealt with by Jesus at the end of days. Because not only do we believe that Jesus is fully human, God in flesh, suffering with us, understanding us, sacrificing Himself for us, we also believe that Jesus is going to be the judge of all humanity. That Jesus is the most qualified to know the hearts of people. That Jesus loves people more than anybody could ever love people. And Jesus is the one that's going to say, did you participate in evil or were you for good? That's what Jesus is going to do at the end of days. That's part of our Christian hope. And Jesus is saying on that day, he's going to vindicate his disciples who were mistreated for being part of him. So your vindication before others is coming from Jesus eventually. He goes on, verse 27. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the rooftops. So here's what he's saying. Dark things are going to happen to you in secret. People are going to malign you because of your faith in Jesus. You are going to face some of these things. They're going to backbite and rumor... Uh, spread rumors about you, and speak ill of you behind your back. Those things are going to happen. You're not crazy for feeling like that's happening. You ever feel like maybe you're crazy? You're like, does this room feel hostile, but I don't know why it feels hostile? Jesus is saying those things that are hidden, he's going to bring them out into the light. They're going to be known and seen. Nothing happens in secret as far as Jesus is concerned. But then he's saying, in those dark places, I'm not only going to be with you, but I'm going to be speaking to you. And so he's saying, don't spend your energy trying to expose what your persecutors have done to you in the dark. Trust that he will reveal the truth one day and judge it. And make it right. Instead, spend your energy proclaiming on the rooftops what Jesus has said to you and revealed to you in the dark with His intimate worships, or his intimate whispers, sorry. So here's the thing: when we go through hard things, dark things, when we suffer, Jesus is near to us, and guess what He's speaking to us in those places. The gospel. The good news: I know you, I understand you, I get this pain, and I died for it. I love you enough to die for it. And I'm not going to leave you here. I'm going to resurrect and restore you. I'm going to make you whole again. And not only you, I'm going to make all things whole again. I'm going to make the world right again. That's our hope for the future. And in those dark moments when you're going through it, Jesus is there speaking that hope to you. To not let it make you bitter. To not make it twist your soul to not make you want to go fight for yourself and defend yourself and join the culture wars and get militant and be extreme. Jesus is saying, take it, but be with me and know that my hope is working. That I'm working in the world and I'm not going to stop. And everything in the dark will one day come into the light. And then he's saying, proclaim that. That. Make that your message in hard time. The sweetness of His steadfast love and faithfulness. The fulfillment you found in Him. The salvation which you have experienced. And the visions of the world to come which you have peeked through the door of your suffering. This is what Jesus is saying. That's worth proclaiming. Not, I've been wronged. I've been hurt. They're being mean to me. Jesus is saying, I'll take care of those things in the quiet places with you. You proclaim my goodness, my sufficiency, my sovereignty, the goodness. Does that make sense? So verse 28, he goes on. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both soul and body, help. Jesus is cutting through the false reality that we live in and saying, what harm can they really do to you anyway? Sure, they can fire you. They can steal your positions or your possessions. What we see historically around the world is that Christians would often lose their homes and lose everything they owned and lose their jobs or even potentially lose their lives. Be imprisoned or tortured. I know people around the globe now who are facing these types of situations. All of these things, though, are actually momentary. They're short-term, Jesus is saying. Because no matter how much suffering you might face in this life, none of it can touch your soul, your eternal person, who you are in the deepest parts of you. No matter how bad things get, Jesus is saying it can't get all of you. Rather, Jesus is saying you should fear not what they can do to you in this life, you should fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. This gets to the heart of evil strategy behind persecution. It's to tempt us through momentary pain to deny Christ and his coming kingdom. Because I think it's the fear of loss. We fear loss, and so we end up compromising. We deny true goodness, and we settle for a false peace under tyranny. A peace that can only be achieved through participation in in partnership with evil. When we fear persecution, or even the displeasure of others, enough to keep quiet, we not only deny God, we join the war against Him. That's what Jesus is saying. And when we participate in the war against God, we also sign up to suffer the same destructive fate as God's enemies. We hear this language of hell coming from the mouth of Jesus. It definitely challenges us because in our modern time we go, what if we just don't talk about that? Let's just keep it about Jesus. Here's the problem with that. Jesus keeps talking about it which is very inconvenient to our strategy to avoid it. So what we have to do then is we have to go, can I trust Jesus' vision for this? Can I trust what Jesus has to say about this and and how it's actually good news? Because from the mouth of Jesus, he's saying this is how we're going to deal with evil. You want a world of goodness? You want a world of love? You want a world without loss? then evil has to be destroyed. And this is God saying, I have a plan for that. At the same time, He's working within the world to say, I'm seeking to save as many as will let me. But there are some that continue to be devoted to the cause of evil. And they choose to go down with evil. It's hard not to think about these things and not think about like World War II and the Holocaust. It's hard not to think about that silence that ends up being a, partition, a participation or even an allowance with evil. All those Europeans, as they watched the Jews being catalyzed and destroyed, the silence was a participation with evil, wasn't it? And Jesus is cutting through to say it's not just those dark war-type moments, the genocides of the world, Jesus is cutting through to say, we're doing it all over the place. We're participating in evil, and it matters. None of it's benign. There is no Switzerland in all of this. Jesus is saying, here's the reality of the human situation. You're either on the side of goodness, love, and salvation, or you're on the side of evil, hate, and destruction. And what the even greater reality is, though, is that I love you and will care for you. So it's helpful to understand there's, there's a big cosmic picture here of God defeating evil and destroying it once and for all in hell. But it's, we need to understand also the personal connection. And this is where Jesus goes next in verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you have more value than many sparrows. So Jesus is going, here's this big cosmic picture. Good destroying evil. Choose. But then he brings it down to this beautiful human level to go, but this is the God who will deal with evil. The God that knows you loves you, and cares about you. The world will sell you out eventually. And it's going to make you think, what does that say about my value? It might be a coworker, or a friend or even a family member who will sell you out or off because of your beliefs. And then you feel like, what does that say about me and my value? And here Jesus is saying, when you're asking that question, did they ever love me? Was I ever worth loving? He's saying God the Father cares about you with such minute detail that He knows the number of hairs on your head. I forgot to ask my wife for permission for this next story. I think, we're, I think we're on the level. So, it, It's a little vulnerable for us as a family. But in the summer, um, we, our kids contracted lice. We think from the movie theater at the mall. <laughs> um, because school was out, and we're like, where did this come from? But my kids are blessed with my hair, which is thick and voluptuous but in this particular situation the gift becomes a curse right because you're not only you're doing these treatments but you're going through the hair and you're finding every remnant of these little demonic beans from the anyway so but part of the process was um, and my wife did this far more than uh, i did but hours she spent hours Over the space of like three weeks, month, over and over and over again, she would sit there for hours going through every single strand of hair. And we have five kids. There's a lot of hair. There's a lot of hours. And and there was a few times where she's like, okay, Ryan, now you need to go through my hair. And I'm like, after like seven minutes, I'm like, yeah, it looks good. But the... When I was reading through Jesus' words in this text, I just couldn't help but picture Jackie, hours of painstaking detail going through every hair and how well she knew them. This picture here is of God the Father's motherly love, of knowing every single strand. Because what we can tend to do with God Is look at it's this far-off, authoritative, you know, architect of salvation and the creation, and that's great. But Jesus comes in with this very beautiful revelation of what God is actually like, going, yeah, there's a cosmic thing at play here where God's gonna destroy the evil that's destroying humanity and destroying the world. And we gotta know that, but at the end of the day, you gotta know his character. And his character is to know every hair on your head. To have them numbered. To know you with that level of detail. And how important is your hair? It's not all that important. So if if the unimportant parts of you are known by him, how much more so the important parts of you? There's some of you, I won't point fingers, that are like, hair is very important and I don't have it. But this picture that Jesus is making here is saying if the non-important parts of you are absolutely intricately known by His love, how much more so the most important parts of you. And He's saying no matter what kind of hardship you face in this life, you can have this knowledge of being known and valued and loved. So if that's true, in theory, if a Christian is facing legitimate persecution, what should be coming out of them in that moment? Should it be about how bad the world is and how mean it is and how against Christians it is and on and on and on. Should that be the predominant message? What should be the predominant message is this love that's being communicated to the Christ, the follower of Jesus in the dark, from the love of the Father. A sweetness should come out of that suffering. That's what should come out of that place. This is the ethics of how Jesus wants the Gospel to spread. And this is why for centuries of the early church, it was known that the suffering of the church was the seed of mission. That when the church suffered, what came out of it was a beautiful message of love. That when the Christian was persecuted to the point of martyrdom and death, often their last words were what? The same words as their Savior, Father, forgive them. That is the message that comes out of the followers of Jesus. So then Jesus brings it around to a closing statement here, verse 32. So, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. So, this brings us to the absolute heart of this conversation for Jesus. If you acknowledge me before others, I will acknowledge you before my Father. In both images, you and Jesus are standing together. And there are two different interactions. In the first, you're standing with Jesus before a human individual could be family, friend, could be a stranger. And in this interaction is this decision that takes place of if the opinion of the other person matters more to you than your relationship with Jesus. Who has your allegiance? When you get into that interaction, do you find yourself not wanting to acknowledge Jesus? As not only your Lord or your Master in terms of who you are a disciple of, but also the fulfillment of your heart and the hope for the world and everything that you love. This is what's happening in this moment. Is Jesus is going, will you acknowledge me or will you pretend I'm not there? you ever gone with a friend to a party or an event and as soon as you got there it was like they pretended you didn't exist? It's not a good feeling. But Jesus is then saying there's another image of which you and me stand before my Father the creator of the galaxies and the universes and the sustainer of the world and the architect of your salvation. And in that interaction, the Father looks to Jesus to ask what happened in that first interaction. The Father looks to Jesus to go, did the person that's with you acknowledge you? Because if they acknowledge you, I acknowledge them. These are the words of Jesus. Verse 33, Jesus goes on. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now, I I don't actually believe Jesus is meaning this is like a once and done interaction situation. But more of a pattern of life. Where one functionally and socially and publicly denies that they're part of Christ and for his cause. And the reason this is so serious is because it reveals the true state of the heart. For many, it's, I like Jesus. I like his promises of salvation. And and I like the sounds of the benefits of that. It sounds advantageous. I consider myself to be part of this community, this church, because it's got some nice people in it. But I don't actually love Jesus more than I love everything else. When push comes to shove... I can live without Jesus, but I cannot live without the approval of others or the comforts of this world. And this reveals that the union with Jesus is not actual, it's just theoretical. So in the end, we actually always genuinely witness what we have found in Jesus. We have either found in Jesus everything or we found in Jesus nothing. So Jesus is saying... For the average follower of him, it comes to a point to go, you can't just like the sounds of this, like who I am with the poor and the broken, like that I heal and restore people in their diseased and and broken hearts. And then when it comes to it, go, when there's any kind of discomfort, I'm I'm not with Jesus. So here's the good news of all this. You, You might come to this point and go. How's any of this good news? You're allowed to feel that way. Here's the good news, I think. Jesus is saying, if you can't live out your faith publicly with integrity, meaning that the real you in private is the real you in public, you should not expect to experience the fullness of His eternal salvation, rescue from hell, or a favorable welcome from the Father. How's that good news? Because He's saying this to save you. The reason you are not living out what you claim to believe about Jesus is because you're not really believing in Jesus in the places you need Him most. So Let me say that again. The reason you're not living that out to that level, what you claim to believe about Jesus, is because you're not really believing in Jesus in the places you need Him most. What you are lacking, so hear me on this, is not greater resolve or boldness or a different personality. And sometimes this gets talked about like this. If you just believe more, you do this. If you just have more boldness, you do this. If you knew it was on the line, you do this. It's kind of this pressure. What you are lacking is not greater resolve or boldness. What you are lacking is greater union with Jesus. A union that's desperate and honest because here's what's happening. You're split into two people. There's the you that you know you need Jesus and you want Jesus. And then there's the public you that's trying to keep working in this system. Let's keep trying to You know, buy into the American dream, earn more, be more, get people's approval, work hard enough, you know, be enough for my life. That split of you is killing you. That living in that brokenness of heart that goes, I'm going to keep working hard, but then I'm going to crash on the inside, and then I need Jesus. And hopefully, Jesus props me up to do a little bit better tomorrow in this stupid system. And Jesus is cutting through to go, look, the reason you're not living this out honestly, authentically, and genuinely is because you're still trying to make this world work. You're still trying to work hard enough. And Jesus is trying to actually get you to lay down the tools and the strength and the stress and the overexertion of trying to make this work, trying to get people's approval through success. He's saying, let it go and be fully in me. Let me not just care for the parts of you that are hurting, but let me reframe your strengths. Let me make you whole. Let me bring those two parts of you together in me. Because here's the deal. Even in Jesus' judgment here, is an invitation To know him deeper and find true fulfillment that results in a wholeness that expresses itself in public integrity. Here's what that means you want to be really yourself. You don't want a private you and a public you that's a face, a mask that you wear, and you have to upkeep it. I'm telling you, as a friend, it's exhausting. The truth here is that that inner you that's desperate and broken and needing an intervention from God and needing to be loved and accepted needing the wounds of your past to be healed, that inner you is meant to be the same you that lives publicly. That loves and works and talks and has opinions and matters. And that is meant to be congruent from the private you with Jesus that is being healed and loved and cared for and the same you that shows up for work and loves people the way you were loved on the inside. That's Jesus' vision here is to go, I just want you to be honest. And so if you find yourself going, I don't know if I can talk about this with my friends. I don't know that I can actually tell my friends family, that I do believe in Jesus and I'm following Jesus, I think they're going to have a negative response to that. There's more security to be had in Jesus. It's an invitation. Jesus is going, I don't fault you for that. I'm not mad at you for that. It just means, let's go back and get more together. Because as you find your sense of self with Him, as you discover your true identity in Him, your Creator, as you know you're loved and, and be, beloved, as you know you're forgiven and restored, as you steep in that reality, not having to perform, not having to overfunction, not pining after people's approval, but truly finding it in Him, you get stronger to be yourself and it's an effortless self not a contrived self and this is Jesus' vision for the follower is to go if if what you've found in me is truly everything then you can live that everything out loud not in a way that's pick and fights and a pain in the butt to people Not Jesus juking people in every conversation, but like authentically going, showing up in relationships and going, this is what I found in Jesus. This is just me. And them go, I'm not into that. And you can go, that's cool. Is it okay if I keep talking about Him because that's what I love? Is there room for the real me in our relationship?" Is there a room for the real me in this world? And here's the thing what that proclaims to the world. Somebody has found a door out of this system. Somebody has found a way out of this soul-crushing, dehumanizing, work-based performance expecting system that says you've got to prove your worth and earn it. When you show up, humbly you, loved by Jesus, and honest and authentic, people go, I don't think I agree with the Jesus stuff, but it seems to be working for you. Don't you think that's a seed of something? And that's the conversation that I hear. Most consistently happens with people that have really found the real Jesus for their real stuff is when they have real conversations with real friends. They go, This seems authentic. It's not a culture war talking point, it's truth, it's hope, it's grace, it's transformation, and it's a way out of a dying, corrupt world. That's, that still loves it. It's the most profound thing in the universe as far as I'm concerned. Nothing works like Jesus. So all this to say, Jesus is not saying, he's, he's going, look, I want you to understand the situation fully. Here's the big picture. And I want you to know it. I want you to know it's at stake. And it's, good triumphing over evil and we've got to choose the side we're on but the way we do that is through deep, intimate union with Jesus. Where we believe in who He is and what He's accomplished and we receive it for where we need it most in such a way that pulls all our broken pieces together and we actually get to live openly whole in this world Free of this system, and we're honest about the hope of what we found in Jesus. This, my friends, is the way of Jesus. So, as we turn to the table, this is our place. So, you hear often talked about with communion, we remember Jesus. We break that up a little bit, and we go, we remember are membered to Jesus. We're realigning to Jesus. Our union is re-strengthened. Not that it was ever falling apart or breaking, but every Sunday for us as a people, we take our whole heart and we recommit it to trusting in Jesus, to following Jesus, and to proclaiming Jesus. So take a quiet moment to prepare for that. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as we gather at the Lord's table, we must recall the promises and warnings given to us in the scriptures. Let us therefore examine ourselves and repent of our sins. Let us give thanks to God for his redemption of the world through his son, Jesus Christ. And as we remember Christ's death for us and receive this pledge of his love, let us resolve to serve him and proclaim him in holiness and righteousness all the days of our life. So let's take a moment now for private confession.